I've got to give a little disclaimer. If you're new in the last three years, you're going to think this is a new message. If you're not, you might think, I've heard some of that before. Because I'm going to share some of what I shared. I believe it was, in, it was either 2011 or 2012 at the Christmas season. We're going to take a little break from 1 John, but we will come back to that. But I want to just share some things as we come into this Christmas season. And the title of the message this morning is simply, A Choice That Confronts Us at Christmas. Now, the world and the enemy is doing all that it can do to, to steal Christmas from the church, to change the meaning, call it happy holidays or whatever they want to call it. And we as a church live in a culture that's surrounded by this attitude, this mentality, and we can easily lose our focus if we aren't careful and keep to the forefront what it is we're celebrating about Christmas. And when you think about what Christmas really is, it does force us to make a choice when we really consider Christmas. How are we going to respond to the choice that we have? So I want to start out with an illustration. And if you could just imagine for a moment that we're in a king's palace and the king is excited because the queen is pregnant and they're about to give birth to the prince. And he calls together all of his counselors and he says, this is a really big deal. My son, the prince is going to be born. How are we going to announce this amazing, amazing event? What are we going to do? How do we make this big splash at the birth of the prince, my son, the future king? And all of the counselors are going around with the, the room with their grandiose ideas and their grandiose plans and the big parties that they're going to they're have and the, the heralds they're going to send out to all the four corners of the kingdom and how they're going to make this amazing, amazing announcement that the prince has been born. And the king notices one of his counselors is just kind of sitting off there to the side and hasn't said a word yet. And the king calls on him and says, you haven't given us any of your ideas yet. What would you suggest we do? And with a little bit of fear and trembling, he says, well, your highness, I think we should send out a messenger in the middle of the night to a group of shepherds out in the hills somewhere and tell them. Well, you can imagine what the reaction would be to that in the room full of all these wise counselors and the king himself. Are you kidding me? Why would we do something so stupid? And as we all know, that's exactly what God did. That's the plan that God had. Obviously, we, we realize eh, his ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. But still, it's like, couldn't you have done it a little more dramatically, Lord? I mean, the temple in the Jerusalem, wouldn't that have been an awesome place to to send these angels and this angelic choir and, and wait until the third hour or the ninth hour of the day when all the people are at the temple and have the angels show up and start singing this choir, this chorus to, to the people about the birth of the, the king, Jesus. Wouldn't that have been a better idea? Or if, if, if not the temple in Jerusalem, maybe just Herod's palace. I mean, after all, he's going to be a king. Maybe that had got Herod's attention just a little bit better and he maybe responded better. That would work. 
Or at the very least, if we've got to fulfill some prophecies, and it's going to be at Bethlehem, how about the town square? When all the people are there and it's filled with all this activity, after all, they've come for the census. And of course, God didn't do any of that. He does everything for a purpose. But this seems even strange for God when you think about it. I want to read uh, quite a few scriptures here. Um, they're not all going to be on the screen. So if you want to turn your book in your Bibles first to Luke chapter 2. And what I would like to have you do is if it were possible, wash all the preconceived ideas you have from watching all those movies and looking at all those nativity sets and look at see what, just what the Bible tells us because you're going to be surprised the picture you have in your mind isn't in the Bible. I'm not saying it couldn't have been. But I'm certainly saying it wasn't in the Bible. So as we read these three different sections of Scripture, just pay attention to what God is giving us information to about the actual birth. In Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, and they were keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in the manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem, and let us see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. It's all the information we get in the Gospel of Luke. In Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1, now it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, So Luke starts after the birth of Christ. And he says, Magi from the east, they arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophets. And it quotes from the prophet Micah, 5 verses 2. It says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star had appeared. 
And then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report back to me so that I can do, I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. It's all the Gospel of Matthew says, really. It does say in verse 16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all the vicinity of Bethlehem from two years old and under, according to which the time which they had been determined by the Magi. That's basically it. Leaves a lot of gaps from what we've had and viewed on television and in movies and Christmas programs and all of those different types of things. What strikes me here, and what I want to look at here today is, why do people react so differently to the things of God? Here we get to look at three different people or groups of people. We had the shepherds, first of all, who all that we know is they were shepherds. We've somehow or other have made them lowly shepherds. And they, what we know is they were out somewhere in the hills near Bethlehem and they were watching their sheep and an angel came and spoke to them. And somehow they knew where to go to find the child. And that's what they did. Then we hear about the Magi. We call them the wise men. Really, all we know is they came from the east. They traveled a long, long time. In talking to the Magi, Herod determined he needed to kill all the kids under two years old, so theoretically they could have been traveling nearly two years. And we know from the scripture that we just read, they went to a house, not a manger, and they went and saw a child, not a baby. Kind of messes with our beautiful little nativity set, doesn't it? And none of that is earth-shaking doctrine that's going to cost us our salvation. But I think it's interesting to look and to say, you know, how easily we get confused by what the Bible doesn't say that we think it says. They responded so differently. Somehow or other, the shepherds were prepared to hear the message. Their hearts had been prepared. Probably would get your attention if an angel showed up in the middle of the night. And then he was accompanied by a choir of angels. But their hearts were prepared because they responded immediately. And the wise men, the wise men, the magi, whatever they had been studying, whatever they had been looking at, whatever they had heard sometime in the past, they were prepared and they were expecting this Jewish king to be born. And when they saw a symbol or a sign, and it appears that it was this star, However far it was, they decided to go and worship him. 
So I want to look, first of all, at the shepherds. Why these shepherds? Was there something special about these particular shepherds? How did the shepherds know where to go? And in the Scripture it said, these things will be assigned to you. It will be a baby in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes or cloths. Why would those things be assigned to them? So now I'm going to take a rabbit trail. And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to be sharing with you now is from some historical texts. You won't find all of this in the Scripture. You can find a lot of things in the Scripture that I think give credibility to what I'm going to share. But I want us to just look at this. And and when I look at this, it just increases my amazement and wonder about God and who He is and the way He does things. We know that God was so exact in fulfilling all His prophecies. Everything concerning the Messiah was just so well laid out. Everything with a purpose. Everything with a plan. And when I think of that, it's hard for me to realize or think that maybe there wasn't a very particular reason why these shepherds? Why that manger? What made the swaddling clothes a sign? To me, it's like, God, you have a purpose for everything. What might the purpose have been here? And what I'm going to share with you, you can, is found in what's called the Oral Torah or the Mishnah, the, the Torah, the original Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And the, the Mishnah expounded on it, and they had other uh, oral things that were passed down amongst the Jewish rabbis. And a lot of this was written down, actually, in, in, in as much as six, seven, eight hundred years before the birth of Christ. And then at the birth of Christ, we see uh, what we see is the fulfillment. And also, if you want to read about it, there's a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, and it's written by a man by the name of Alfred Edersheim. Written a long time ago. A Jewish historian. I have a map I want you to look at, if you can pull it up, to give you an idea just where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are. They're very close to one another somewhere between four and five miles. A lot of the books will say with, you could walk there in an hour. Very close. And another thing that we need to know from our history and the archaeological things that have been dug up and the things they've discovered, Bethlehem was a much larger city then than it is now. Don't know exactly. And we also need to know that sometimes they referred to Bethlehem, and when they said Bethlehem, it was more the region around Bethlehem, including the actual village itself. So it's hard for us to know exactly from Scripture when it it says to go into Bethlehem, go into the territory of Bethlehem, go into the city limits of Bethlehem. Where were the city limits of Bethlehem? We really don't know exactly. When you look at Bethlehem and how close they are to one another, that'll be important as we look at what I want to share here. Put up the uh, next picture too. This is a modern, much more modern picture but this would be what the area of Bethlehem looked like. They're kind of mountainous, only for us, they, we wouldn't think of the Rocky Mountains. We would think more of big hills, rolling hills. This particular picture has terraces and that they've irrigated some of the, the trees there as they plant the fruit, harvest the fruit. But this would give you an idea of the countryside. At that time, it was pretty much all just places where they would feed the sheep, pasture the sheep. 
not real lush pastures, but the whole area surrounding Bethlehem, basically between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, would look like that. And it turns out that there was particular flocks of sheep that were raised between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. These were the sheep that they would get the temple sacrifices from. And a lot of the historians would say that those particular shepherds were not ordinary shepherds. They had been trained so that they knew exactly what to do with the baby sheep, the lambs when they're born, how they took care of them, how they inspected them, what they did with them to make sure they would be lambs without spot and without blemish. Some of them even, some of the historians even say that they had some sort of priestly rabbinic training. But they probably were kind of a unique group of shepherds, according to what Jewish history would tell us. And these sheep, they had to have a lot of sheep. They would sacrifice sheep every single day during the third hour of the day and the ninth hour of the day. That was part of their regular temple worship. There's even some history that tells us on the day of Passover. Now, the Passover is a whole other story. You'll read that they sacrificed anywhere from a couple hundred thousand sheep to maybe closer to a million sheep that had to come from somewhere. Numbers that are hard for us to comprehend. Rivers of blood would flow during Passover. And again, all those sheep had to be carefully inspected to make sure they were without spot and blemish. And these shepherds that were trained and educated north of Bethlehem, between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, along the road to Jerusalem, where they would be with their flocks. And there is a tower, or was a tower, and archaeologists have recently uncovered what they think is this very tower. It was called Migdal Adur. And if you look, it would be a tall tower. We're not sure how many stories, but the stories above, second story and however many were, they would be able to go up there and watch their flocks out on the pastures. Very interestingly, the bottom floor or the bottom story was called a manger. And in that manger, there was a feed trough that really would be called a manger. Different words. And they used that bottom story or bottom place for the birthing of the lambs. And the history tells us, the Jewish history says, they would take the ewes, the female lamb, and take it in there to be birthed. And then what they would do is to make sure that this new lamb didn't fall around or kick around or thrash around, to make sure that it didn't hurt itself and pick up any kind of blemish or bruising or or broken bones, they would wrap it in cloth. And history says it was actually cloth from the priest's old garments that they no longer used. And history also tells us, and this is really certain, that when they would sacrifice a lamb... At the temple, they would use what they called swaddling bands instead of claws. And each lamb would be bound with a swaddling band around its legs when the sheep was going to be, the lamb was going to be slaughtered. 
There's so much interesting imagery here, it, it makes a person begin to wonder of the significance of these shepherds. Might the Lamb of God been introduced to these shepherds? Was there a real clue when they said, go to the baby is born in a manger? Now, I read a couple articles by some of these historians, and they do a whole, whole, whole word breakdown, word study, and they believe that it's wrongly interpreted when it said, and this is, doesn't seem like a big deal, but it says, he will be born in a manger. They say, no, 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 no. It should have been interpreted, they will bo- he will be born in the manger. Not a manger, the manger. And you will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes. And they would tell us, the historians would believe that when that clue, that's why it was, you will find this as a sign. You will find a baby, the Messiah, the Christ, in the manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. And those shepherds would have known exactly where they needed to go. They wouldn't have had to wonder and go walk around the, the community of Bethlehem in the dark of night trying to find the right place. Interesting to me, to say the least, that this could be the detail that God would have gone to in preparing the right people to hear the message. In Luke 2.12, it said, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in a manger, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, the manger. When I think of the detail that God had laid out for Jesus' life, it's not hard for me to imagine that this could be exactly what happened. The Lamb of God, born in the manger, were the sacrificial lambs that were sacrificed every day during worship and were sacrificed by the thousands on the Passover days, the Passover week, would be born in that same place. Wrapped in the same type of cloths, the undergarments of the, that are no longer used by the priests, just like those little sheep, those little lambs. Going back to Scripture, these shepherds and these wise men, the shepherds seemed to be prepared. The wise men were also prepared. And boy, we don't know much about these wise men at all. But we, we seem to could maybe assume that they must have studied something or heard something. Maybe in all of their studies, these magi, these wise men, had studied the Old Testament Prophets. Not unreasonable to believe. But whatever they had been reading or had heard, it had been enough to convince them. They were prepared when they saw this sign and they connected the dots in their mind. They had been watching. They had been hoping. They had been waiting for this sign of the birth of a king. And when they saw the star, somehow they knew. And they were ready and they committed themselves to go right away. No hesitation. So the shepherds were prepared. The magi, the wise men were prepared. And then there's this other guy named Herod. Herod was not prepared to hear the word. He didn't have the eyes to to see or the ears to hear 
the truth about the Messiah. When what we call Christmas came to Herod, he did not choose to receive it at all. And when I look at the wise men, the shepherds, the Herod, I think, you know, it's not that different today. Some people are prepared to hear the word of God. Some people are prepared to hear the truth. Some people are prepared to hear what the Christmas story is really about. And then there's others. And then there's others. Then there's people battling to get any, any sign of Christmas out of our public domain. Remove it. We can't even say Merry Christmas anymore in some places because it's not politically correct to do. Trying to remove it. There, there are so many people today that are not prepared to hear the message of Christmas. And there are some people that will hear the message of Christmas, but when they look in the cradle, all they want to see is the baby Jesus and he's nice and cute and warm and cuddly. There was a story of a city in the United States where they put up this beautiful crash like we all have in our imagination. But when you went up to the cradle and you looked in the cradle, they didn't have a baby in there. They didn't have a doll in there. They had a cross in there. And the people went nuts about having a cross in there to ruin Christmas, to ruin the message of Christmas. An uproar in the community. Get the cross out of the cradle. The reality is the cross is in the cradle. Really, that's the message of Christmas. God did come in the flesh, in the incarnation of God. That, without it, nothing else matters. That's true. But what he came to accomplish is represented better by the cross than the cradle. He came to die on the cross for us as sinners. That's why he was born. And that's why Jesus had to leave heaven, leave where he had spent eternity past, communing with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he was willing to leave all that to come to earth, take on the limits of human flesh, and then die on a cross. That's the real message of Christmas. And not everybody's heart is prepared to hear that message. When we go back and look at the shepherds, picturing the scene wherever it was and whoever these shepherds were, but they're out in the, out in the fields, and the angels come. And it says they were afraid. A little scary. The angel says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news for everybody, all man. And instantly, their response. You know, you didn't, you didn't, the Bible doesn't give us any indication that there was a moment's hesitation. Whatever the angel said, they understood it and they received it. And in verse uh, 12, is it? It says, let's go to Bethlehem and see what this thing has happened. Let's go right now. Some translation, let's get going. Let's go straight to Bethlehem. Wherever it is, let's go. Let's leave the sheep. Let's not worry about the sheep. We've got to go and see the king, the Messiah, Jesus. Immediately a response of obedience. Now, not to be skeptical, but can you imagine if 10, 12, 14 of us were that group of shepherds sitting around the campfire doing whatever we do? 
And the angel shows up, tells us this crazy story. Then we get this choir. Can you imagine the conversation the 10, 12 of us would have had after they left? First, we'd have probably looked at each other just to make sure we all saw the same thing. You see that? Am I nuts? What do you think of that? How do you make sense of this story? The Messiah has been born in a manger. I mean, can you imagine all the questioning, all the debating, all those things that we would do naturally, I think, as humans? None of that. They were prepared. Isn't it fun when you spare the story of Jesus Christ with someone and they respond that quickly? If you've had that happen, I'm pretty sure you've probably tried to share that message with a lot of people because they are quite few and far between in our culture. But there's some people that are just ready. Lord has drawn them to himself. The Holy Spirit has been preparing their hearts. They're, they're, whatever's been going on in their life, they're, they're ready to hear, ready to receive, just like the shepherds. And the wise men, I really wish we knew more about the wise men because they really intrigue me. However far they came, they, they evidently saw whatever it was they were looking for, this star, and it lined up with whatever they'd been reading or had been told, and they loaded up their camels. I think there was camels. And we do know they loaded up some gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We know that much. We don't know how many of them there were, and we certainly don't know how many servants went along with them, but probably a few. And they loaded up everything. And, and can you imagine you know, going out of town that day with your little caravan? Where are you going? I don't know. Well, how far? I don't know that either. Why are you going? We're going to go see the king that's been born. Oh, really? Who? I don't know. You coming back? We hope so. Why are you taking all that stuff with you? That gold and frankincense and myrrh. Aren't you afraid of robbers? No, we're going to go worship him. You're going to do what? We're going to go worship him. These magi really interest me. The faith. And we don't really get an indication that they were believers. We don't know. But whatever they were, they had faith. And they responded in obedience right away. We're going to see a king. We may never have thought of it this way, but if we're living out our faith, if you have a walk of faith, in a sense we're like the Magi. Because people that haven't got that faith, have never experienced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and don't know him, they look at you like you're weird. What are you doing those things for? Well, because we love the Lord. (laughs) Your whole life's changed. What's wrong with you? Walk of faith. They don't understand it. They won't get it. They will ask us challenging questions. People you know and love, maybe friends, family. They're going to think you're nuts because your walk of faith is so incomprehensible to them. They don't understand what you're doing. They don't understand why you're doing it. They don't understand who you're doing it for. Shoot, I still have some friends that are waiting for me to snap out of it. 
Now that's faith. (laughs) But your walk of faith and my walk of faith in a lot of ways should be similar to the Magi. And we should expect a similar response that they're just not going to get it. But our walk of faith should be different enough and unique enough that they would would cause them to question and ask us, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You used to be fun. Ever hear that one? You used to be fun. What happened? I found more fun. I found greater joy. You know that thing called peace you all wish you had? I know where it's at. Hopelessness? Oh, I found hope. And it's all about Christmas. It's a Christmas story. It's a a walk of faith. We have what the world wants. They don't know it. But the Holy Spirit is continually going all around the earth looking for people and drawing people. And we get to be blessed by sometimes being that one person that gets to be there and be involved with the moment they receive faith, the moment they accept Christ, that moment that they're ready to receive the message of Christmas, the message of the cross. But we need to be reminded there are Herods out there. Herod had no faith. He was definitely not ready to receive the Messiah. In verse 2 of Matthew, or verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2, when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became enraged. And he went and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all the vicinity, the area of Bethlehem, from two years old and under, according to the time. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? He was totally filled with fear, not faith. He was afraid of losing his power, his position, his prestige. His image was being threatened. I'm the king. Who's this new king? You know, Bethlehem was only an hour's walk away. It's hard to almost imagine that you couldn't hear the screams from Jerusalem when they were in Bethlehem and the surrounding area killing all these children under two years of age. Hostility, fear, fear of losing everything. There's a lot of Herods out there. They they may not be as violent as Herod. They may not lash out like Herod did because of who he was. But there's a lot of people out there, and some of us were that, at least to a degree. They see the message of Christmas. They see the message of the cross, and what they think about is what they got to give up. i got to lose this, 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 this. I can't do this anymore. I can't be like that anymore. We need to understand that they have no understanding of what the Lord will give them at that moment of salvation. They don't understand the seed, the Holy Spirit, be planted in us and all of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that now lives in us. They don't understand the power that resides in us. They don't understand who we are in Christ. They don't get the songs we sang this morning about being a child of God. They don't get a good, good father. They don't get any of that. 
But Jesus loves them and wants to save them. And he wants his church to be involved in doing it. And if you're saved, you're a member of his church. And he commissioned us to go into all the world and share the good news of the gospel. That's what we need to be doing. And quite honestly, there is maybe two times during the year that it's easier than it will be at any other time. Easter and Christmas. All the Christers even go to church then. But we have the opportunity to, what are you doing? Why are you, what are you celebrating? Why is this so important? We need to hang on to the story of Christmas and the gospel message and share it with everybody that we get an opportunity to share it with. And if you ask the Holy Spirit to provide those opportunities and bring people across your paths for you to share it with, you'll be amazed how many times the opportunities present themselves. But if we're not aware, they just go right past us. We don't even see them as opportunities. We can do that. Jesus surrendered all his power and glory. He willingly set it aside. He said, I'm not going to use it anymore. He could have done so many things as God, but he chose not to. He became a baby and walked amongst us for about 33 years. If you run out of things to meditate on, just meditate on that. You're God in the flesh. You've been around since eternity past, whatever that is. Been in the presence of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, just enjoying everything that that means and entails. And you had to be trapped in skin and bone for 33 years. That's amazing right there. What a demonstration of love. And then he was nailed to a cross. Because the Father loves us so much. So how do we respond? Who are we like? Are we like the, the shepherds? Are we like the wise men, the magi? Or are we like the Herods? That's a choice that really should confront everybody at Christmas. And frankly, it doesn't confront everybody at Christmas unless we go out there in the world and share the truth of Christmas. It's been watered down so much in the last number of years. It's been watered down so much that people don't even have any idea what we're really celebrating at Christmas. The church should take advantage of it to share what we've got. I believe, completely believe, that every human being born is born with a hole in them that needs to be filled by God. And they spend their whole life searching to fill that hole. And we're doing them no favors by being worried we'll offend them. We just to make sure that we're always walking in love. Our job's not to condemn. Our job's not to convict. Our, guys, our job is to love them and share the truth. Let that be our, our purpose through the Christmas holiday. Let that be the gift that we give complete strangers through the Christmas season. Lord, I pray that during this time we call Christmas, when we celebrate you coming to earth in the form of a baby child, that we will be stirred in our hearts as your sons and daughters to share the good news of the gospel. God, that a spirit of fear cannot keep us from sharing the good news, sharing the hope that we have within us, sharing what the world wants and needs, 
God, we acknowledge you are the only answer to the problems of this age. And God, you have commissioned us to go, be your hands and feet, to, to do the acts of service, to be your mouthpieces, to share the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would give us favor when we step out by faith, that that spirit of fear cannot prevent us. Thank you this morning for your word. God, that you are faithful to it. And God, that you've told us that we have the authority as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. When we're fearful of knowing what to say, you'll give us the words to speak. Lord, I pray that we would have the obedience of the the Magi and the shepherds. And pray that you would rescue many of the Herods that will come across our paths. Ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.